Guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, we have a spectacular episode with Dr. Steph Burrell in the mix. Let me tell you about my friend here, okay? He's born in Sweden lives in Canada, trained in the U.S. He's a community medicine trained physician. He did his MBA, MPH, Master's of Public Health at John Hopkins University, Bolin. And we're bringing him on the show for a couple reasons. He is from Sweden. He has got relatives in Sweden. Really, it gives us an opportunity to hear that perspective. Like, what is actually going on? Are people going in the streets, going to bars, are the hospitals being overrun? What's what's the scenario in Sweden? What's been their uh, true approach to dealing with the pandemic? Second thing I, I found fascinating about uh, Steph, I heard him on another podcast on plenary sessions, and you know it was interesting hearing how much backlash he got from colleagues and, and, and the media when just voicing their opinion on some of the public health measures and I think this is what I've been finding scary. We need to be able to have an open dialogue about what's going on. You know, I was a bit inspired after hearing our public health officials locally saying, you know, we shouldn't be celebrating Halloween, which to me just drew the line. You know, after we've worked so hard to express to people, be outside, be in small cohorts, do what we can to stay safe. And this seemed like one of the opportunities we had. And, and so I was inspired by his willingness to be more outspoken. The other thing we'll talk about here is how, you know, some places have succeeded with focused responses, you know, not just blanket statements and saying we need to close bars and restaurants when those aren't the areas of, of concern, you know. So having that conversation with them, talking about how COVID's really been impacted so many of the socio socioeconomically hit people and races. So I got to tell you guys, this is a fascinating conversation with a intelligent, well-spoken, holistically approaching individual. So let's dive in. Quadcast Nation, I've been ultra excited about this conversation with Steph Burrell because, you know, I think, Steph, you and I have similar apprehension on how we are approaching this pandemic. We've sat by the wayside and, and, and been rah, rah, rah to our public health for several months. But, you know, there have been several concerns, I think. And there is not a better person and a better qualified person 
that I can think of than Steph Burrell. So welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I think we can start a bit about your background just because it's a bit like it's global. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, a very Canadian story. It's a very Canadian story. So, yeah. How did you land in Hopkins, my friend? Yeah, I think that that's great. So I, yeah, I was born in Sweden. I say it's a very Canadian story because we're all from, everybody's from somewhere. You know what I mean? Including yeah. everybody in this household and, and, you know, but we all feel very Canadian. The, um, so I, I was born in Sweden, grew up in Sweden. My, we, my family were immigrants to Sweden as well. They'd come from Poland. Um, but we were, you know, and, and my dad um, at some point never loved actually living in Sweden. And he brought us to Canada at some point um, when I was about 11 years old. We, um, I lived in Winnipeg, uh, but I got to say that I, Winnipeg was a bit of a, a stretch from Stockholm and I moved to Montreal as soon as I could. And, you know, very traditional, went to McGill, went to med school. During, after uh, I was really heading towards, you know, doing internal medicine, I had the opportunity to meet Alan Ronald, who's at University of Manitoba. And I heard him give a talk about his work um, across Sub-Saharan Africa, and specifically in Kenya at that point, with Frank Plummer, who sadly recently passed away. Um, and um, I kind of ran after him and I was so excited. And, and he ended up setting up a rotation in Uganda. And I ended up going to Uganda. And there, I, there was a, a new center uh, that had just been uh, built. Uh, and it was run in collaboration between Makerere University and Johns Hopkins. So I got to meet all these folks and kind of learn more about this idea of like working in public health and human rights. And I radically shifted everything I was going to do, only applied to community medicine or what is now called public health and better medicine residencies. Uh, and, um, you know, went to Johns Hopkins for my MPH and my MBA program, a combined degree program, uh, and then kind of retained an affiliation there. And, and after I finished my residency and even during my residency, kept working there, started there as faculty about 11 years ago and, you know, continued that, uh, that partnership. So it, it came out of a kind of left field, but it, it's a wonderful institution that I, I feel very connected to. Wow. Absolutely. And so you have, so like, when did you move to, to Canada? Like, do you yeah, have memories of, of, uh, of Sweden? Like just, Oh, absolutely. And I, I'll note this actually, my mom, uh, when my little brother finished university, my mom, my mom moved back to Sweden Okay. and I, um, almost every opportunity I would, I, I, I go, I would go back there and, and now, you know, pre COVID with the opportunity to travel as much through Europe as I do, I would often try to spend like, I know this sounds whimsical now, but spend like a night, you know, I would like, flying up from wherever, land in Amsterdam or Paris, fly to Sweden for a day on like a Friday night, spend Saturday there with my mom. I know, I know it sounds ridiculous at this point. Fly back and then on Sunday, you know, continue my, my journey back onto Toronto or wherever. But no, I remember Sweden well. I, I remember actually, you know, I think this is the thing, like I was never like an, in, like I, I consider it, you know, my birthplace, but I really am very Canadian. Yeah. I'm very deeply Canadian. We, that's a whole different conversation, but I very much associate with this country and, yeah. and all that it stands for. And I mean, the reason I think it's important to emphasize is because, you know, we hear a lot about what's going on in Sweden with, with COVID. We hear the good and the bad and, but you have a, a bit of uh, 
better perspective because you have family still there. So like, what is actually going on in Sweden? Because you hear such different things in terms of, you know, people are going out, living their regular lives uh, or vice versa. So what, what have you heard or seen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's so interesting in terms of like how, you know, Sweden has addressed or sort of approached this entire uh, pandemic. And, and I'll note, whatever we want to say about it, it's far more of a traditional public health response than many other places in the world, mm. including here. So, I mean, again, it's like whatever value judgment you want to, uh, you know, assign to that, it's a far more traditional approach. And, and there were certain things that I think, um, you know, that they really considered priority. So one of them was, I think, trying to understand like empiric drivers rather than the sort of very rapid move to restriction-based approaches. So I'll say just as a starting point, you know, in my public health training, it doesn't feel familiar to me to move right to kind of a, like a restrictions-based public health response. That as a starting point to me feels, you know, kind of foreign. And I think in Sweden, there's certain things that they did very early. Um, they, I mean, you know, the, you know they, they instituted, for example, paid leave um, for all their providers from the first day. So you literally, it used to be that you'd get paid leave from the second or third day, but now from the first day you're feeling unwell, if you live in a high-risk home setting or you live in a high, or you work in a high-risk occupation, um, you know, you can call in sick right away. And so I think like there was some of these things because they started noting that, you know, there's, and we knew this from very early days in this pandemic, like this infection was not affecting everybody equally. Like this idea, the virus doesn't discriminate. To me, I'll just say it's like an ally, it was sort of like the all lives matter movement. You know what I mean? Like, it's like this idea that like, well, we're all in the same boat. And I think people have like said very eloquently, like we're not all in the same boat. Many of us are not in the same boat at all. We may not even be in the boat. Do you know what I mean? Like some yeah. folks have so little COVID exposure that this that they're sort of bystanders to this whole thing. And, and I think in Sweden, like they recognize very quickly high-risk occupations included taxi drivers, Uber drivers, delivery folks, mm. people that are in these high exposure occupations that you know also were living in multi-generational households. And there, even though I think we think of Sweden as just having a baseline, you know, more of a focus on equity, whether it be universal education, like they don't pay to go to university, you know, obviously universal health, similar to, to what we have here. But I think that, you know, they noted very quickly that like the disparities were happening along socioeconomic lines and it's specifically like really particularly recent immigrants to Sweden. Mm -hmm. And that tended to live in more multi-generational households and also work as taxi drivers. So this is like this intersection between like working and living conditions. And so even though you saw these incredibly high levels of mortality, it was really concentrated among long-term care facilities, you know, mm -hmm. as, as has been seen in many, so many places. And then secondly, in, um, in more, you know, densely populated and more economically marginalized parts of Stockholm. And I think that's where they focus their interventions and not with like, targeted restrictions not like oh these are more economically marginalized parts of the city so we should lock them down and let the rich you know run around and whatnot but actually like think about like what were the strategies that they could use to try to address those needs mm -hmm. and and try to mitigate them and and that you know takes time and i think you know it's so interesting about sweden and and you know we've been trying to analyze this from the beginning like 
you know, is like, where was the mortality happening? Again, it was within long-term care facilities. It was tragic, including in the place where my grandparents lived out their lives, like, um, you know, a massive outbreak. And, you know, from the same sorts of things that have happened here, like staff, you know, more economically marginalized healthcare workers going from like facility to facility, home care, facility, home, home, you know, and then living in more densely parts of the town themselves, because these aren't the highest paid healthcare workers. Um, and, and really kind of delivering COVID because they're not resourced to kind of prevent it. And, and, and you know, and, and there being incredible amounts of mortality associated with that. So, I mean, I'll, I'll just say, I think that like Sweden has worked in not a restrictions-based approach to try to address those needs. Now there's certain things that they did. It was more like empowerment and recommendations and less enforcement and police. Right. And so as much as we want to say, like, it's interesting to have watched the, the, the evolution of the narrative of Sweden over the last eight months. Like we could play a kind of a drinking game about like the different terms that are used to describe Sweden. So first of all, Sweden chose its economy over its people. They, you know, they hate their people and they, they're, you know, they're runaway capitalists. And like, if you've ever been to Sweden, you'll note like, it's all government. Government runs everything. They're all a bunch of socialists. You know what I mean? Like everybody pays incredibly high tax rates and like, it was amazing to see even the right-wing media in the U.S. go from like talking about no-go zones in Sweden to all of a sudden like Sweden's the model for the world and, you know, when, when not taking into account, you know, all the different sort of, sorts of like kind of services that exist, you know, including universal health care and universal education. Then it's moved to like slowly over time as mortality has decreased and we're getting a better handle that actually like I've been updating these analyses almost month, you know, monthly because the Swedish uh, Central Statistics Bureau updates their mortality data. Mm -hmm. And you know, there was incredibly high mortality in May and June. But actually, like, if you look into like later June, July, August, and, and now September have been like amongst the lowest mortality months in a really long time. Yeah, and I well, read September like, was ever. September, September was, was like, ever. Yeah, one of the lowest period. Ever. Yeah. No, no, ever. Yeah. And, and so now when you kind of look, at, you can see that between 2015 to 2019, we're about, you know, the Sweden's about 2.5% um, higher uh, adjusted mortality or about 1,800 deaths more than would have been expected. And I think there's more complicated math that needs to go into this. But my guess is by the end of the year, the, the total number of people who died will be about average, you know, um, and, and so that'll evolve over time. So I think it's it's like, you know, so now the narrative has changed to like, you know, well, they did lock down. They just did, they did a lockdown. And then it's like, but, but did they? Because like, if you actually go and see photos, like their lives have changed, but nowhere like our lives have changed. Right. And people keep saying, well, their economy tanked anyways. And I'm like, for those of us, like, I don't actually care. I, 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 I own no stocks other than like my, in my retirement plans, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't care about the economy other than the fact that I recognize that the economy is, is related to people's well-being. Mm -hmm. You know, even in Canada, like people get their meds and their benefits from their employers. They get their dental care through their employers and they get like just a sense of well-being by knowing that they're going to be able to put food on the table and take care of their families by being employed. And the CERB may cover some of those things, like some of these benefits can cover but generally speaking, we know that being employed is a social determinant of health. So it's really easy for those of us who are like securely employed to tell people that the economy doesn't matter 
when like we have nothing to worry about. We're totally comfortable. And so we were joking about this term of like job splaining. Do you know what I mean? Like stop job splaining to people that jobs don't matter when your job is secure and they've just recently been fired. That's, you know? that's what kills me about a lot of like, I think the term is like, like people that have the ability to have all these zoom meetings and they're the ones, you know, shaming and dictating what should be done. Whereas, you know, their lives aren't being affected. Like I, I live in Ottawa, which is 70, 70% government, you know, that's right. People are doing fine. Uh, right. A lot of people doing fine. So it's easy to be judgy. I, I got to ask you though, you know, when you're saying like Sweden, you know, they had an approach to deal with the low socioeconomics, the multi-generational homes, because this is what we're seeing here too, like at the bedside. Um, and so like, you know, we're having a discussion amongst the colleagues too, like what, what, what did they do? Like, what could you do to, to mitigate risk in those uh, scenarios? Yeah, I mean, I think, so, you know, what's amazing to me again, sort of coming back to this idea of like, we have effectively given governments around the world, like, a really easy out. But I'll just start and then I'll get into like what I think you can do. Mm. Like, I think whenever cases go up, when you've basically told governments that if they implement some like graded level of restrictions, like close Halloween, close strip clubs, close oh. restaurants, close whatever, that's actually easy. Because the only thing you really have to do is call the cops to help you enforce the whole thing. You don't have to figure out how to address the needs of communities. You don't have to engage the communities. You don't have to talk to them, empirically understand risks. You don't have to do any of the sort of core things that we consider critical to public health. You just have to basically start like shutting things down. And then again, having like the city enforce it or the, or the province enforce it. And so I do think there's like, a, you know, broadly speaking, we should be like looking at resource-based interventions first. And, and so there's like some things that just feel like the easiest things in the world and feel painful to me that we haven't done them yet. And so, you know, for example, we recognize like we just every day now we're learning about more and more outbreaks at long-term care facilities across Ontario. And what's amazing to me is like, why are these outbreaks happening? Like we're, we've implemented IPAC, like infection prevention and control. We're trying to optimize those. We're working with communities to, we're working with communities of, of like employment uh, entities, OPSWA, like the Ontario uh, Personal Support Worker Association, among others. People have access to testing regularly. Obviously, that's how these, this, that's how these outbreaks are, are being understood to, to be happening. But it's amazing to me that like virus is clearly entering the building, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and like some percentage of those folks are asymptomatic. Some percentage of those folks are mildly symptomatic. Some percentage of those folks have no idea that they've had a contact, but some folks have, know that they've had a contact. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I think, again, before we move into this thing of like, how dare they not listen to public health rules and whatnot about if they're mildly symptomatic or if they know they had a contact, just ask them about their own needs. Because the reality is, yes, the full-time workers and even some of the part-time workers can get benefits if they don't work and can get paid leave. A lot of the contract hires, agency hires, other folks have no benefits, mm. nothing. So you ask yourself the question like, and I do this all the time, like my rule in public health is like, how would I feel about it? You know what I mean? Like at its core, how would I feel about it? And if I was worried about like putting food on the table or keeping my household together or taking care of my kids, 
doing any of the things that a lot of these primary caregivers are doing, I would absolutely continue going to work. And so we've not addressed those needs. We've not provided those folks the security that they need to like, you know what, I think I'm sick. Or it turns out that like, I think I had a contact last week or whatever, and I should phone this in and I should feel comfortable that I'm like, I'm not going to get fired and I'm, and my family's going to be fed. And, and so like that to me just feels like an easy one. The second thing that I think is, is like critical is like throughout the beginning of this, like at the beginning of the outbreak. So I work, you know, I provide care in shelter settings Mm -hmm. and like on day one, we set up like a a shelter recovery site and we went out and actually one of my colleagues, uh, Tom Slavsvoda moved in there for 13 days. He just like lived there. I, you know, like went back and forth every day and we were admitting people and we, we ended up, you know, it was about a 40 bed facility until it took about two weeks to get like the bigger one uh, up and running this 150 bed facility. But we ran this thing. But this was only for folks enrolled in basically the homeless system within uh, Toronto. Mm-hmm. There was like, if you were in a densely housed environment, unstably housed, couch surfing, any of those things, like you weren't allowed to come in. Emerges would be like, hey, we have somebody, he's couch surfing, can he come? And the answer was no, we can't have you come. So then we're sending them back for 10 days while they're under investigation and they're getting this advice to like, make sure you isolate. And I'm, they're like, where would you like me to isolate, sir? Do you know what I mean? Where, where should I isolate? Like on this couch in my shared apartment. So, you know, we sort of like this, this constant thing of like trying to educate people into like, make sure you isolate. It's like, where, where am I going to isolate? Where? And the answer is like, we have no idea where you should isolate. I don't know. Figure it out. Peace out. You know what I mean? And so, and then next person. And so it's like, at its core, masks, like closing restaurants doesn't fix that. Mask interventions, like that does, they're not empiric, you know, because empiric would be like, let's figure out where this person can isolate because if they are, especially if they live in a multi-generational household, especially if they were just any household where they don't at least have one room per person. And that data, it's not like, we did a study together with AMFAR the Foundation for AIDS Research, and this is, these are US data, showing that, looking at particularly um, like predominantly African-American counties in the US and like why were they at risk? And you know, the biggest determinant was really like that those counties were more likely to include having more than one person per uh, room per household. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a major one. Um, you know, being in more high exposure occupations, being more economically marginalized. So you can like explain away the disparities very easily. It's nothing biological, obviously. You explain away these disparities in very easy ways of like living and working conditions. And then only after you've looked at all those socioeconomic disparities, can you then think about like, is there anything else going on? Which by the way, there isn't. When you adjust for those things, like the differences fall away. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, I would just say is like another thing that I just want to say one thing about like testing in this province in so many places is like we've set up testing basically for like the zoom generation or like you know 100 percent. yeah we've set it up like i think people are calling it the zoomocracy which i think is not unreasonable you know the work from home generation is like we how does a shift worker who works at mcdonald's or anywhere say you know what hey i need uh four hours to like go to this testing facility going to wait. Can you pay me during that time? The answer is like, not only obviously are they not going to get paid, you know, but they could get fired. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't, you know, like there's a whole question about like so many people have like lost their jobs in very murky ways over the last 
you know, eight months. And so there's, there's also this dynamic of like, we've not really like set up testing to be aligned with where needs are. We've done it when there's outbreaks, we've done outreach testing and obviously in shelters, we've done it. We've seen some innovative stuff where people have set up in buildings, like, mm -hmm. you know, famously, or, you know, famously, but Toronto East General or Michael Guerin Hospital, like set up a place in like a, a you know, a, a building that's uh, in, in Scarborough that's more economically marginalized. And, and it was a great thing to do, but it was like a one-off. That, that should be like the basis of the way that we're doing things and not just setting up for like rich people with their kids and, you know, kind of getting tested for school. So, so I just say it's like, there's a couple key things is like how we're doing testing, making sure that we're like at least temporarily alleviating barriers to care. We still, obviously, if you're undocumented in this country, like I can see you, but I really can't do anything for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I can see you and, and like we have an internal billing program to like let people do it, but I can't order anything for you. I can't do anything for you. So even if you can get COVID tested, you can't get provided anything after that. We, you know, we haven't set up housing context at all to, to tell, and we haven't set up any of the sort of paid leave things that, you know, or interventions and, and put those in place. So it's like, those felt like those were easy wins. It's like, here we are. And like, the only thing we've done is like, well, all right, again, like, let, like, what are we going to shut down now? Okay, Halloween. Let's shut down Halloween. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, it's so, it pains I, me. Oh, my. You know, it's funny, uh, Steph, because you you voiced on, um, I heard you on plenary and saying how like you were hesitant to voice your opinion with stuff just because of the media and the backlash within the community. It was, it was I did my first oppositional to public health uh, address when I, and Halloween was the kind of the thing that kind of jump started it because it's like you've been telling people the whole time, go outside, be in a small group. Do this safely. Kids are already playing, going to school together, and you're going to say this isn't enough right now. Like it's just like people getting beat down, and I'm and like as you said, we got problem spots with the the multi generational and homes and low socioeconomic situations. Meanwhile, these businesses that were hustling, that were trying to do everything they can to stay afloat, and terrific. abiding by public health, uh, you know, uh, mandates. And then they're like, oh, no, by the way, shame on you guys for whatever you're doing out there, because shame on you. And plus, we're going to punish you and restrict things for another month. And I just, to me, it's, it's just, it's just too much. It's all too much. I, I, I don't know. It's yeah. just, um, it's getting I mean, upsetting. I actually, I mean, I, I, I want to say something about restaurants. It's, it's so interesting to me. It's like, I... I, I love empiric data. Like, it's like I spend my days in empiric data. And I think what, what's interesting is like, so I wanted to just understand, like, what are the data telling us that like restaurants are the issue? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, we're, yeah. we're not, we're not dumb. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not the brightest, but I'm not dumbest person. Like tell it to us. And then I think people will understand because I mean, we're both providers. Mm -hmm. Like I always say, this, I'm like, you don't force a patient into something. Like in, in Toronto, we have like three like forced beds at West Park for like MDR TV where like people won't comply. Like we, and, and like we form people incredibly rarely. And even then it's 72 hours. And you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we have to work with our clients to find mutual wins of things that are gonna work. 
because forcing them into things is a quick way for just to destroy the relationship. Mm-hmm. And as providers, like the most important thing we can do, at least in outpatient medicine, is like, especially with marginalized communities and marginalized people, is build trust. And, mm-hmm. and the best way to do that is to like be able to explain it. And I am often asked to explain these things. And I can't. And so when I've gone to like, again, I say this with like respect to the folks on the science table because I know they're busy and, and I'm sure it's like unpaid or I don't know, whatnot. But like, I'm trying to understand like, what data are you using to close restaurants by? And I went in and I found like the one study where they had done like a, a case control in the United States of like 350 people with COVID and found that like people who had gone to, who had COVID were more likely to be an ethnicity, it was their words, not mine, Mm-hmm. Um, to be an ethnicity and to have been at a restaurant. And like, you don't know that they like were delivering food from that restaurant. You don't know if they ate at that restaurant or if they were doing dishes at that restaurant. Like you don't know anything. So it's like, if there has to, it's gotta be better than this. Mm-hmm. Like we, we need a higher standard because in order for you to meaningfully like shut down Halloween, you have to, you can't just like rely on the precautionary principle and say, well, we don't know. So let's just shut it down and, and you know, we'll all sleep better at night. It's like, there, it has to be more impaired than that. And, and I'll say the media piece, just as a personal anecdote, and this happened to me, like in March, I tend to like, there's a lot of white men in the media. It's like, I was just like, a, like there's an over, like we're overrepresented. And I just don't want to be like another person in the media when there's a lot of other folks can talk about it. But there was one element that I thought wasn't talked about early on, which is that like, these things are seasonal. These are seasonal coronaviruses. And in March, somebody like reached out and was like, hey, do you want to talk about this? <clears throat> so I said, sure. Like, I think this thing will slow down in the summer, but it also means it's going to pick back up in the winter. Like, that's just, that is the nature of these things. And we wrote a paper about it and some other work about it. Um, and then, it's, it's, I, you know, BBC uh, saw this thing and then they asked me to come on. So I went on BBC and I talked about seasonality and it was the same thing. It wasn't like, don't worry about it. It was like in the context of mitigations, this thing should slow down in the summer. But by the way, in the context of mitigations, this thing's still going to pick up in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Immediately after that, I got calls from people that I work with that are like, hey, you need to be really careful about what you say. And I was like, what did I say? Do you know <laughs> what I mean? And they're like, it turned out Donald Trump at the same time was also talking about seasonality. Now he's using it in the way that he would do it, which is like, don't worry about anything. This thing's going to go away and it'll never come back. That's, by the way, fundamentally different than what I was saying. I was like, I think this is going to slow down in the summer, which is great planning time because come October, September, October, like it's likely coming back no matter what we do. So let's use that as a time to plan, prepare, think about it, like you pull all, all our data together. And, but it was very much of like, you need to be very careful about how you're being perceived. And it's, and after that, I was just like, I'm not doing any more media. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not engaging in this because it's, it's hitting too close home and I'm just going to write papers and I've written a, a bunch of papers, but I'm like, I, because I think at some point we're going to have to learn like what happened, mm-hmm. like what happened here? <laughs> what, what happened? <laughs> what, how did we make these decisions? Like who was in charge? What was driving these decisions? And I, I, I don't think this time in history will be viewed well from any, from many numbers. Oh, yes. can it be? It's like, you know, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to be careful too here, but yeah. like, yes, you, you want, you, you learn. Like we kind of talked about in the beginning, like, I think you just want to learn as you go and learn quickly. So yes, you lock down, 
You didn't know what the hell's going on. It was scary or whatever. Once again, not typical public health principles, but you know, we don't know what sure. we're, we're doing, what we're dealing with. But as information is coming in, once you realize the the mortality is decreasing, it's not as as deadly as we th- thought it was going to be. The there's some things that are more predictable about how it's tough to get it outside. Clearly, it's showing some seasonality. Um, you know, older people versus younger people. Like, like let's start thinking about this and let's be strategic. It's like it's like you said about the the what we're trying to do to mitigate risk. It's you are shutting down restaurants, shutting down kids' activities, and show me the data that's showing that this is associated with outbreaks. This is associated with poor outcomes. I could get behind that. I could totally get behind that. And don't give me these one case scenario. Like I was talking, I play hockey. So my buddy sent me the CDC. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, that one outbreak in Vermont or whatever. I'm like, okay, there's going to be exceptions all the time. I can see why it happened. Is this the norm? Do you know what I'm saying? And like, were they, were they being careful? Were they like, you know, at, at our rink, there's like, only a certain amount of people in the locker room, no face-offs, all these kind of things. Like, to me, we, it's like your tweet, man. Is it zero COVID versus zero COVID mortality? It's like, we got to learn how to live with this. It's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. You know, I, I, anyway, I'm going well, on. Well, I, no, I, I just want to say, I mean, it's so interesting because Senegal has been heralded as a successful country yeah what's going on in africa i i I have no fear and why isn't it getting any press i have like i that's a legit question like i honestly don't know what's going down in the motherland but senegal i'm interested to hear this well i mean i'll just say this so what's so interesting about senegal is i've had the pleasure and the honor of working there for about 15 years so when covid was starting, first of all, they, they, I mean, they have no need, they have amazing public health folks, but there was just a lot of discussions with colleagues there about Senegal, because we have a number of projects underway with partners. And, and you know, the dynamic is such that they closed down for a few weeks, um, and, but like they opened on May 11th, mm-hmm. May 11th. So Mati Sal, President Mati Sal said, listen, exactly the words you just used is like, we need to figure out how we're going to learn to live with this virus. We're going to mitigate where we can, but like, we can't like, you know, when, when he was about to close down and this was a very tense discussion that a friend of mine shared with me uh, in a meeting, like was going to like fully lock down the same. And people were like, listen, like a lot of folks here, although, you know, it's, it's a wonderful country. It's a wonderful place. Um, still live day to day. And you, you are going to create a tremendous amount of mortality if you do, you know, if you go down this route of like having people do more like what happened in Rwanda, for example, where it was just, you know, just complete shutdown. And, and so they pushed back against it. They did. They organized some of their testing. They, you know, um, figured out how to work with religious leaders to, you know, have safe events and whatnot. And they've had some outbreaks here and there, but by and large, they've managed it and are like rated the number two country in the world on this index of like, countries have succeeded. Number one is New Zealand, which use like military, like managed quarantine. If you test positive, like you just got to go to like this military run hotel. So I was like, military run hotels don't feel like hotels at all. There's a different name. We call those jails. You know what I mean? But whatever, like either way, you know, I was like, you couldn't be any more opposite. Senegal 
saw that it's, you know, it's, it's neighboring country, the Gambia, which is, as you may know, is a country completely embedded within Senegal, was having troubles and, and was kind of needed support in their response. And they like, you know, sent all their ministerial staff to like, you know, partner with um, the folks in the Gambia. So I was like, that's, that's the model. We're like, we work together, we work across borders, we recognize there's movement anyways. What did like Europe do? Or what did North America do? Like we nationalistically like shut our borders, we shut our provinces. It's like that feels amazing to me. Mm. I mean, I'll, I'll note this across, you know, obviously like I'm not African by any means. I, I, I participated in two papers related to sort of looking at um, decision-making around Sub-Saharan Africa. One, South Africa specifically, because South Africa tends to bear the brunt of like respiratory viruses and respiratory illnesses across uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. But it was to say that actually, if you know, the initial models that we're calling, I mean, you must have seen this, 3 million people going to die, overtaking every health system. And it's like, would, could you ever imagine a scenario where you would use data from like Malawi to estimate what will happen in Italy? Oh. Like, you know what I mean? Like nobody would do that. And, and, and like here, people had no problem with parametrizing a model using like 80 year olds in Lombardy to like for everywhere, like Africa, the country, do you know what I mean? Like literally. Um, yeah. I, I don't even think it's fair to model what, how COVID will behave in Toronto compared to Ottawa. Like, well, that's exactly it. You that's know, true. like I just, the, the that was uh, Another pet peeve of mine was these dramatic, even up to a, a month ago, they showed the models in Ontario about like, oh, if these cases continue, this is what this is what we're dealing with. And I'm like, you really believe that? I'm like, there's so many assumptions in your model that I, I could guarantee you know are likely to be wrong. Even the, um, this was an argument I heard, which blew my, my mind, is that they assume in a lot of these models that there's equal dispersion. Well, that's exactly it. Amongst uh, people. So like, just to the listener, like if you're 20 years old, you're saying you're equally likely to be just hanging out with 80 year olds and all that kind of shit. Whereas like, you know, these 22 year olds are hanging out mostly with 22 year olds who are less likely to uh, get sick and spread it to other older people. So it's even that, element of modeling is flawed and so this is uh and 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 if you look at the number like we're october 26 if you continue to look at the the model for even the low what would they call it the low scenario we're still under that right now in terms of i think icu utilization or hospitalization i forget which term they were using but uh it's that has been uh a huge detriment in my mind in, in terms of creating fear and creating all these restrictions and such. Right. Oh. But, I, but I'd say like, even to like sort of simplify past dispersion is this idea that like, we're all at the same risk. A lot of the models assume homogeneity of risks across age strata. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and the reality is that like, we know this is not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. We know that like, folks in in the wealthier parts of Ottawa are at different risk than folks in more economically marge, marginalized parts, but they're applying like a single parameter across these age strata and and just modeling it. And, and sure, like it looks terrible. I'd say there's a few things, like one is this amazing dynamic. And I think it's part of like this sort of deep politicization of this response and like, 
Trump and this, I don't know, like all of it feels all like wrapped up in this big old mess. But it's like this argument that like, because we, you know, can't intervene in networks, we shouldn't even try. I.e. like, because we can't, you know, like protect, you know, all particularly marginalized folks that we shouldn't even start intervening in networks. And to me, I would have felt like, indeed, networks are at the heart of this whole thing. Like, if somebody is infected and they're not that sick, then the whole idea is it's a network issue, right? <clears throat> it's like, who's in their network, either occupationally or, you know, from a living context, or in these, like, ad, you know, like spinning, like those are the one-off, like the, the spinning thing in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. But it's like, who's in their network? How do you understand that network? And how do you like address those risks adaptively? Because not everybody needs the same level of resources. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, a core interventional strategy is this idea of like equity. If somebody needs more, you do more for them. Yeah. You don't shut them down harder. You know what I mean? You do more for them. You spend more for them. Because by the way, not only do they benefit and everybody in their network benefits, we benefit. Yeah. Like Canada benefits. And so I, I think that part of it has been this idea of like this, this, this sort of inability to particularly address the needs of like more marginalized folks. Again, not with the thought of like, I don't know, I've seen these things of like, well, you know, we need to like shut down parts of Toronto. And I'm like, so what are, are you going to still let them out to like deliver you food? Are you going to deliver? Are you going to let them out to do these? Are they going to have like a little ID card? Like I'm a DoorDash person and I'm going to go to Rosedale to deliver food. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like the thought of these things. It's like, I actually, I was like, if there's one thing that will like take me to the streets, I was like, that is this idea of like targeted lockdowns in this city. I literally like, I'm like, that's it. Like at that point, I'm not, I'm not writing papers anywhere. I'm going to take to the streets because it's so, it's like, it's so un-Canadian. Not only is it so fundamentally unjust, but it's really un-Canadian because these conditions existed long before COVID ever arrived. Yeah. It's not new. Yeah. And you know, the point that you make that's actually even you could see some exponential growth too. It's like, take COVID aside. You know, if you invest more in some of these marginalized communities, you know, you get them healthier. You're going to, you, like it, to me, it's an investment. They're okay. going to, they're not going to end up and seeing me in the ICU or in the merge for whatever problem, invest in that community to be able to, uh, to get them healthier, to get the resources they need. Simple things like, you know, even, basic housing like something that we don't talk about enough um like that will be exponential so you know i i i mean I, no it's painful right like it's like yeah. we could have used this time like what when else could you have gone in time when like to get more like conservative minded folks to invest in like progressive ideas yeah. i'll tell you very rarely like what does context come up where i'm like i see literally like right-wing oriented folks being like, we, we need to really think about housing. Yeah. It's like, so let's, why didn't we like, like we should have like attacked that and we should have like fought for these sorts of changes that we know will not only like pay great dividends around COVID, but also like just like life and, yeah. and, and like what we aspire to be, I think as Canadians, but yeah. no, we're now like, you know, it's like sitting at home being like, well, that part of the city cases are growing. So like, let's, let's just shut down the strip clubs there. It's like, sure. No problem. Have, I shut down the strip. Have you met Mark Tyndall? Or I no? have, but in other work, uh, in other pre-COVID. Yeah, no, it's just because like uh, we had a com great conversation with him a few months back, but just he was able to get 
or its network quite a bit of investment in terms of like creating some housing in the right. in uh, Vancouver uh, community for that reason. Like people saw the value um, issues that they've been asking for for years, but because of COVID, uh, were accelerated, which got me, you know, got me excited and full of hope. As it should, yeah. yeah. But BC, like, there's a lot of like. I'm having a lot of BC jealousy. Like Bonnie Henry. Ballin. Ballin. I mean, like, think about everything, like everything that I learned, I will note, you know, she's, you know, community medicine physician, like incredibly experienced. Everything that I learn is kind of represented in what she's doing. Mm. You compassionate language, harm reduction approaches. Yes. Engagement, resources before restrictions, like all these things that she's doing. I was like, that's the model, not close. Like the idea of schools as truly an intervention of last resort because you understand the fundamental value of education of children, especially again, because like there's this like economic differential between like what rich folks can do to make sure their kids are going to be fine and more, more economically marginalized, like shift workers can do to make sure their kids are going to be fine. Yeah. And so, you know, there is like everything she did there. And so like, you know, I talked to my colleagues and like, they started like, you know, thinking about resources for long-term care facilities right away. They started working on paid leave, like housing, everything. And to us on here, it's like, we, you know, we drew circles in a park. Do you know what I mean? Like that was the pain. I was like, Trinity Bellwoods, like let's draw circles and then let's redraw them every three days and find people if they sit outside the circle. And like, it's so broken. Yeah. I love the the point though, you brought up a couple of times too, about the positive psychology of this, like, Stop with the shaming. Reinforce like what you can do. Think about like a harm reduction approach here. You know, like I give a simple example too. Is like I don't know. You look athletic. I don't know. You played a sport growing up, but remember the coach that would. There's the shame, shame, shame coach. But there was the coach also was like Steph. The way you did that was awesome. Now let's work on this. Like you know, you can do this, right? Like you giving you the tools, giving you that positivity, like. I think this is where people will thrive. They're more likely to buy in. They're more likely to totally. listen. And and I don't know. It's just what I'm seeing in Ontario. Like, I just think it's, I guess part of my worry is that it's dangerous. Like, if you keep giving these flip-flop, you know, angles and this shame on you, shame on all of you for doing what you're doing. Like, where's, is it? Is the trust element? Where's that trust going to be? You know, well, um, that's right. I don't know. I just I, no. I, just, I, I think it's. I think it's. It's such an important concern because it's at its core. Like I always think of public health as a service industry. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like we have a customer. It's the public. You know what I mean? We need to engage. And we need to understand them. We need mm. to engage them, and and then we need to serve them. And if it mm. doesn't work right away, then we need to iterate. And we need to keep working to we figure out how to serve their needs. And you get into this dynamic where you shame your customer and blame them. And I, I get it, by the way. I mean, I think we've seen this for other things like in sexual health and et cetera, where like fear, you know, turns to shame and anger. Like I should say, you know, fear turns into anger and then you start shaming people and blaming. And then soon enough, you're criminalizing them. Mm-hmm. It's just it, it's like with HIV, it took years. You know what I mean? Like there was so much fear and then you just started like, they started criminalizing it a few years later. Here, we've done it amazingly quickly. 
-hmm. Like it was like, and, and I, it's like that part of it felt so foreign to me because just as a personal anecdote, you know, we were in the shelter, like in like, I don't know, maybe early April. And and this guy comes in, one of the clients comes in and he's got an $800 ticket for like lying on a bench. And he's like, what do I do with it? And like, we all started just laughing. Do you know what I mean? Cause we're like, he doesn't, he doesn't have $800. You know, he just literally does not have eight hundred dollars. So we're like, he's like, do I have to pay it? I'm like, I, I, I don't think you need to pay that ticket. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think at, like at some point they're just gonna like have to let these tickets go because it's like, where, where did you want him to sit? And then when people were upset when they closed all the bathrooms, that people are like defecating in the streets. I'm like, but where, where do you want him to go to the bathroom? Ex- like, what, what you there's know what I no mean? Like, few, there's no thinking to like, it's there's no, it's not even a two steps ahead. It's half a step ahead. What do you think is happening next? Like, this is what it just gets to me. It's just, there's no forward thinking with this. And it's, it's just like, as you said, too, in uh, like the seasonality component, there was so much to think about. Oh, my God. And we had months. We had months. We never got hit hard. Like, Ottawa is very different than Toronto. We didn't get hit hard at all, okay? And, um, and I know a lot of places in, in GTA didn't either. And so you, you, things come down. Hey, what should we do to prepare for the fall? How do we get the long-term care facilities uh, set up? How do we mitigate risk? What's the message we're going to send out here? And there, it's just, like I said, it's just no. It's all kind of uh, reactionary. The whole thing seems so reactionary. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm ranting a lot just because you know it's kind of like what you said. Like I'm a I'm a big. I, I mean, you you're doing this job. Because I think, you know, one of the values you must have in you is like justice and the ability to, to be able to, you know, take care of those that can't take care of themselves as, as well as, as, they, as, uh, as needed. And this is part of the reason why I've been more vocal, too, is this is just isn't right. A lot of the stuff it's we're doing right. is not right. The way, you know, the zoomocracy, the, um, the lack of of planning, the lack of focus, the lack of targeted interventions, the lack of this, or the, the, this ability to just blanket restrictions, because this is what we're going to do. And this is what makes, you know, this makes sense, or apparently makes sense to, to, to public health and to, and to governments. It's just, it's too much. I don't know. Sorry to rant off. Of no, for a second. It, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I will say this, that at its core, so I'll just say there's sort of three core principles of public health that I always think are really important to keep in mind. So like social justice, the idea that you should balance intervention, benefit, and burden. Equity, as I said, where you do more for people who need more, but it also means you do less for people who need less. Right. And then participation, where you engage the community in the interventions that you want them to do. Those are three things that like we should be doing for all our interventions and we should be thinking about this. So I'll say this, like, the, the justice piece of it, ensuring there's a balance, either at an individual or community level of intervention, benefit, and burden is, mm-hmm. is fundamental here. And I think that part we've just not considered. And I think just to kind of close out that restaurant piece, like you ask restaurants to do all these things to open. I, I don't know, but I, I think I should just say this. Like, I don't own a restaurant. I don't work. In, I mean, I've spent my youth working in restaurants and loved that time. But nonetheless, they did all of it. And then you shut them anyways. And, and, I, and, I, and I will say that, like, I think to, that's tough for them. I think it's, 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 fun. it's like I can't imagine the pain 
that kind of went through and, and just like wanting to understand why and, and the need to be able to provide them that explanation. Yeah. And that you can't just rely on the precautionary principle because these are often small businesses. I'm not talking about like Earl's, like some major corporation owned. I'm talking about like mom and pop owned places that like yeah. this is their livelihood. They're going to yeah. lose their homes. They're going to yeah. lose like the ability to educate their children wherever they're at. I mean, like everything. Yeah. You're playing with serious things. So when people are like, don't worry about the economy, it's like, you know yeah. what? How about you worry about your own economy? I'll worry about Mike. I will say this, like, I'm also not at risk. Like we have, we have a backyard, we have everything we need, mm -hmm. but like the whole point is you have to plan and consider like what is happening to other people at a very granular level. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we stop, if we stop doing that, do you know what I mean? We, we lose the fundamental values that are intended to drive public health in Canada. And by the way, just like society in Canada, because mm -hmm. we like to think of ourselves as like an equitable society. I like to think, of Canada as like a society that values justice and equity. Mm -hmm. And when we lose that, I don't, like, I don't know what we have left. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I mean, I hope we will get back to that for okay. sure. Um, like this is another kind of issue that we danced on, but in your opinion, Steph, like what should our goals be? Like this is one of the, the, the anxiety provoking things with public health is that I, I haven't hear clear objectives like it was clear in the beginning it was let's not overrun the system let's make sure our icus are, are functional but in october 26 i have no idea what our goals are because I, i'll say this straight up too this whether it's controversial or not you cannot just look at cases like it, you can't look at them in isolation like yes they might be going up but you can't like for example compare them to april when you know the same amount of people weren't able to get tested, like the denominator has changed tremendously. In your mind, what would be reasonable goals that, for us? Yeah, I mean, I think, so one key problem, I think, is part of this like weird politicization of this response is like, there's a lot of voices, a lot of voices. And, you know, and, and it feels very like individual voices that like are driving this narrative and gets into the media. And I worry, like the most optimistic part of me worries that public health is like, is, is just like kind of always like reacting to like the media and react, you know what I mean? And politics of it, because politicians want to, you know, be seen as being active and decisive and whatnot. But I'll just say this, that like traditionally in public health, in the pre-Twitter era and the pre-social media era, like we would, there would be a dashboard you know, you would be having a series of different indicators. And, and I could imagine indicators that include like positivity rates by age group, positivity rates by different in different communities, because that, you know, we're highly burdened, competing health risks, you know, that were like, how are you doing on vaccination and cancer screening and all these things. So we're starting to see the dividends of that, you know, in the media lately with like more advanced cancers, less screening, partner, you know, uh, is a neurologist at St. Mike's is concerns about people showing up later for, with strokes, not showing up for TIAs, saw that. you know, yeah, all, all of that. Stuff. So you would, that. yeah. So, so you would have, you know, a dashboard based approach and you would be like setting like key, like key performance indicators across each of them. And, and you keep iterating your response and you get it as, as empiric as possible. Like what I've missed so gravely, never mind the justice pieces and all of it is empiricism. Like it feels like a foreign concept at this point. Like 
just not value judgments about like our, again, I, I say strip clubs because it's like the ultimate part of the pandemic theater. Like one thing, I'll just say this, like in public health training, the thing that I was taught over and over again is like, don't chase unicorns, mm-hmm. don't chase unicorns. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, so like, but most of this has felt like chasing unicorns and pandemic theater, like this mix of like showing decisiveness. And, and so I would have had like, just like, where are people, you know, affected? Why are they affected? So for example, staff of long-term care facilities are far more likely to live in particularly marginalized parts of town. There seems to be this like circulating transmission dynamic between their workplace and their home settings, which is not surprising. But like, what have we done then to intervene there? Mm-hmm. Like, and understand in those communities to serve them better. So there's like, you know, the idea of like, like it's hard for me to even recognize a single empiric intervention over the last like eight months. Like masks and social, like fine, I have no problem with masks, I'll wear them. But actually like, you know, at its core, we, we know in public health, actually like my day job is what's called implementation research, which is like you, you assess the difference between program promise and program impact. Like if every program just worked because you like told people to wear masks and then you shamed them into wearing them, like I wouldn't have a job. The reality is that we have a ton of interventions ranging from like the condom to like everything else that like exists and may work at the individual level, but doesn't have the population level reductions that you would hope that they would have. Mm-hmm. So it is the case that, I mean, I would say a few things like it is at its core, I would want an empiric response that and now like eight months into this thing is like responding to the, so much data that we have, whether it be by socioeconomic status, by racial, by, you know, kind of underlying structural racism that is driving a lot of these things, those disparities, you know, like spatial heterogeneities, occupational, differential occupational risk, like all of that would be informing a response. So at its core, I would want empirical. And by the way, the public would get behind that because you could explain it to them. Yes. You could talk to them and say, listen, we've now seen that like, and not just like some, like using some, case control study from the US, but I mean like actual, like your data local. from your yeah. setting, you know what I mean? Like all public health is local. So yeah. it should be responding to local dynamics and not what they saw in Wuhan or what they saw in Lombardy, but like now what's happened here. So I, I think that that is core, like it wouldn't be a single indicator. It mm-hmm. surely wouldn't be cases. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't be cases alone. It would be mm-hmm. cases in context. And that's why I was saying about zero COVID mortalities that actually aiming for zero COVID and aiming for zero COVID mortality are fundamentally different programs. Those, you know, the idea is like you have a goal and then you set up a series of like smart objectives, like specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, timely objectives in response to that. And then you have these indicators and like zero COVID mortality as a goal is a fundamentally different program. And I just don't see it in a lot of places. It's in some, but definitely not, you know, I see it more in BC. I see it, um, you know, I, I see it definitely in some uh, ruralities and, and areas across uh, Canada. And I definitely, you know, that I see it in Sweden. I don't see it in here. So just like uh, I'm four years old, like what does that, what does that look like in those places? Like just to, just to be clear. Well, I think that like at its core, what they're doing is, so for example, you know, things change quickly, but like if you look at Sweden, people have said, there's no way to break the connection between cases among youth and cases among elderly folks. And by the way, I think that's untrue. 
I don't think we've really tried. I don't think if we like tried right away, it would work right away, but like one would have hoped we'd be iterating over and over and over again and perfecting that program. And so like, I actually do think that there's ways of doing that. Like, like I said, by, by thinking of this as a network issue, but I think at its core, what we've seen now in Sweden is like, they have some increases in ICU lately, but like they're like estimating, you know, zero and one death a day when they've had increasing cases for like the last six or eight weeks. And by the way, they never really got down to zero cases. They've had, you know, cases throughout. And, and, and I think people want to look at this as like some sort of disaster when their excess mortality, like I said, decreased about late June, like we're in late October. And it's basically yeah. been close to the baseline throughout that time. And, and ICU rates have been, you know, constant throughout that time. But they, you know, they've limited like, you know, it's just a lot of education and a lot of mm -hmm. empowerment. And at its core, I always say this, like, I'm so happy my mom's been there. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, I just think her quality of life and her, her actual, like the ability of all her non-COVID needs have been so better addressed there than what we could have ever done here um, in Ontario. So, so that is to say, I think that it is like, it's not doing nothing and it's surely not let it rip. Like, it's so like, such a I false dichotomy. It's yeah. like, it's just such a painful way of shaming you into even having a conversation about other interventions. Like, well, you don't value life. I'm like, really? I don't value life. Is that, that's, that's what this is. Do you know what I mean? I was like that, you know what I mean? And it's like, I think it's just a way of like shaming you into not even engaging in the conversation. It's yeah. like, of course I value life. Of course I want to serve people in the best way that I can. And by the way, I've been face to face with this thing. Like, you know, since day one and i don't i mean i don't that's not like a hero says just like a factual statement we all have but it's like the the dynamic has been like don't tell me it's actually because i serve folks and i'm trying to provide care for these folks that i recognize that my ability to do that over the last eight months has been severely inhibited i can't get investigations for folks i can't get them the care they need i can't get them the home care they need i can't, I can't get anything other than COVID testing mm. no it's <laughs> It's so true. Actually, just while I have it, do you, do you have an opinion on the testing that we we do? Like, I, I haven't heard you speak on this before, but like the fact that it's, we can skip this if you want, but like if it's oh. the fact that it's PCR driven, that it's uh, amplified, like, I don't know, depending on where your, your location is, like, is that something you, you feel? Yeah, I'm totally happy to talk about testing. I mean, for me, I think of like testing in two key flavors. I think of testing as in the type of tests we're using. Yeah. And, and then I think of the strategies of like how we're rolling out testing. I think we talked a little bit about like strategies, like I would align testing strategies with like people's lived realities, especially the people that we're looking to engage in meaningful ways. So that would mean things like potentially like workplace testing. It would mean things, definitely outreach testing, home-based testing, like we do sometimes for TB where we go to shelters, we go to, you know, high risk homes and, and we do this, especially with the emergence of some of the, like the salivary kits, et cetera. Um, so that I think like the idea of like how we've like rolled out our testing is painful to me because it's been very like bricks and mortar facility based and just doesn't work for like a large proportion of the people that we would really want to engage in those testing services. Then you kind of get into this thing. The other tests are like, let's say just for now and two, two flavors, like the PCR-based test and the serological test. Um, the, you know, the PCR-based test, I mean, I will say this, all I would want is a standard. Do you know what I mean? People, there are smart testing folks across 
like, you know, the public health agency, public health agency of Canada, public health Ontario, um, all the different public health agency, BC, CDC, among many others get together and say like, this, this is how many times we're going to amplify this because we think that is predictive of onward transmission. Because I think that is another dynamic between what is it you're after? Is it, at, are you after trying to understand if somebody's ever had this? Because if they're well enough that you don't really know, then you're really worried about onward transmission. Do you know what I mean? If this person is, you're, you're nice, you don't, if this person is in front of you, like at that point, you're doing them all this stuff, like you're giving them bets anyways, but like yeah. you're doing all this stuff for them that you can and finding out if they had the thing is critical. And by the way, not that difficult because they're going to be really viremic. Yeah. Um, but like, if you're actually testing somebody who's generally well, you're testing them as a means of onward transmission. So yeah, obviously to me, I would want these smart folks to sit around and say like, this is our standard. We're going to amplify this thing like, you know, 40 times or 38 times or 35 times. And we're going to have that standard across Canada in the least. And we're going to recommend that standard. Like, I just like, this would have been a great thing for the WHO to said, like, if we want some comparability across all these different countries, these are the things that we have to do. And I haven't seen it. So yeah, in short, I would be most interested in a test that focused more on like actual infectiousness. Yeah. And because again, if somebody's well enough that you don't know, that's the only thing you kind of care about is, you know, trying to prevent onward transmission. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You're not, otherwise you're just, it's just data for people like me to play with and analyze. Yeah. The serological tests, I think it's also kind of painful to me that like, we know at this point that the sensitivity of those tests increases with the severity of infection. That, by the way, is not new for COVID. That's well known. It was like known in SARS and it's known for other coronaviruses and, and the role of, you know, cellular immunity, et cetera. So it's like, while this concept of immunity has been so deeply politicized, the idea that like we can just use these serological assays as actual correlates of exposure also oversimplifies it mm -hmm. because it's totally not that sensitive for most people who weren't hospitalized or had very, very mild clinical courses. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just like the whole, the whole piece of it just feels so like not empiric, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like just like, like populist. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and sometimes you get into these explanations and they're like, it's, it, it's getting too complicated. I'm like, since when do we not embrace complexity? in public health issues, yeah. you know, since when is complexity a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, especially when it gets down to the truth, like you, sometimes it needs to be, you need to go through that complexity to get your answers, you know? Totally. Um, That's right. Unbelievable. So maybe the last, last thing that we could touch on, Steph, so what, what are your, like what are your projections of this moving forward? Because I'll say this. I've said this on the media too. You know, we we put in these restrictions because you know cases went up and hospitalizations went up, which is fair. Like, which I'm much more comfortable with reacting, like reacting in general. Yeah, of course. Um, but at the same time, what did we expect? Do you know what I mean? Like, as you mentioned, seasonal virus appears seasonal, where it's going into fall, we're in tighter quarters, like all these things that uh, can amplify the the exposure like what do you what is your projections or predictions of how this is going to behave throughout the the rest of the winter i guess yeah i mean i'll i'll, I'll say this that like i i mean i think maybe i don't know if this is controversial it's just like my own truth is like i don't recognize really a meaningful intervention yet in most places to say mm -hmm. that i mean like so it's like i actually think we're basically seeing like the natural 
life course because it's like the restrictions, as you said, like they're not, they, they don't, it's not an empiric intervention. It's just like it's a delay tactic. You're trying to like, you know, prevent people from exposing each other, but it's not empiric to like where risks are happening. So I think we're kind of like, and at some point you got to let them out anyways, unless you really are like, you know, unless we're going to start playing really interesting games with like our societies in ways that like are even more extreme than what we've already done today. So, I mean, I, I, first of all, I'm like the optimistic part of me feels like there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to actually do empiric interventions that we've not yet done. The, my predictions are like, I will, I mean, again, I, I noted like immunity has become this very political concept. Like immunity is not a strategy, but I believe it to be a reality. Do you know what I mean? And so I, I was like, like, I don't know if like lightning came down, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> is it crazy though that it, you can't talk about it? No, I can't talk about it. No, it, like, no, but, now, no, but you know what I mean? Joking. Like, like why? Anyways, it's just, no, but so I'll say this, like, I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll just say that like, I think that there's going to be an inverse relationship. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with these vaccines. I'll say this. Like I first started working on adenovirus based vaccines mm -hmm. in 1997 as a master's student. You asked me about my master's of science. I, I did it at McMaster at the center for gene therapeutics. And we worked on cancer vaccines using ad based vaccines. Mm -hmm. Like it's 2020, you know what I mean? So like, I'm hopeful for this vaccine, like the Oxford vaccine, but like I've been waiting for adenovirus vaccines since like, you know, since Family Matters was on television. <laughs> and so, you know what I mean? Like that, that like, but so like if a vaccine comes, it's going to take time for it to get like rolled out. And so we're going to have to kind of like deal with this winter and this wave kind of as it comes. I do think we're going to see this like a bit of an inverse relationship. And we're starting to see this like even in places like Italy and even in Sweden. Stockholm that was so heavily affected is being less affected with serious, like they're still getting cases. But in terms of actually people getting sick, it's really now in Uppsala. In, in Italy, the north is being spared. It's really southern Italy that's really being affected. And so, or, or even, even more granular than that, like neighborhoods that have been affected. So I do think we're going to see a bit of an inverse relationship between the places that have been more severely affected with that sort of earlier wave and the ones that will be affected now. But I, I don't, I think that that, you know, we, we can account that to whatever we want. I do believe a lot of that is going to be related to like interference with networks more on the side of immunity than on the side of, of like the actual kind of like interventions to date. Um, but I, you know, I think in, there are opportunities to really intervene in long-term care facilities, which is now, I, I don't know, like as of today, we have 80 across the province in outbreak. Like, and, and so I think that like we have this opportunity to intervene in those settings. I don't think we've really leveraged those opportunities to date. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that there are better ways, some structural pieces to address the needs of people who work there to off count, to offset those risks. Um, but I, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I don't think that this winter is going to be as, as tough as like these models are projecting. I don't, I think that like in Toronto, like I think very, very regionally, like one ICU may need to like move people around. But yeah, I, saw I saw some that. of these projections where they like all, even in best case scenario, all our ICUs are overloaded. And while I don't think that this means we don't need to like intervene again, I've, the whole time I've been talking about empiric interventions, but it is to say that I, yeah, I, I don't find that to be a very realistic scenario. I think that when you include, and I, I'll just note, even at that meeting where different models were presented, other models were presented with more of this heterogeneity by neighborhood, by community, and it showed a very different picture that was not as grave as the one that ended up making the news. So 
that is not to say we don't need to be active and I want us to be doing all these things, but I, I just don't think that like our city's going to be overrun and like, you know, it's going to be the purge and we're all going to be running in the streets, you know, with, with no resources. I actually think it's going to play out better than that as I thought in the spring. And I, I think now, so. No, I, I personally agree. And for a few reasons, one, you know, there does seem to be some, some level of immunity that's happening. Like, I don't know to what degree, you know, sure. I, I'm also seeing people come in less sick, you know, like compared to when they came in uh, back in, um, in, in the spring. Um, I just hope that with us becoming smarter, hopefully we'll become smarter and, and focusing on areas where that are heavy, heavierly hit, heavier hit. Um, we could be more uh, strategic and really mitigate a lot of this. Oh my God. Steph, you're balling today, my friend. This was awesome. This was absolutely awesome. Um, just, you know, just at a personal level, just to be able to be just, I don't know, just, just having an authentic conversation on COVID and lessons we've learned, where we could see this going. It's and just having that real conversation on 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 topics, even though I know that could be taboo, but this conversations that need to be had. And I hope this is the beginning of some more authentic conversations, you know, not just you know amongst colleagues, but in the Twitter sphere and the media, because I think we we need to be able to ha have real dialogue uh, about so many of these issues. Um, so, Steph, I gotta I gotta thank you so much for this. Thank you for taking the time. And I don't think this is going to be the last time you're going to be coming on the quadcast. Where can uh, people get a hold of you? If you want them yeah. to get a hold of you, by the way. No, no, I don't I even mean, know I, if they want. <laughs> you know, the, the, I always say this, like the, sometimes the pains of working at an academic center is you're very easily accessible. I mean, I think increasingly I'll say this, like I stayed off Twitter for, for a number of reasons, because I think there's just like a lot of people like me in the media and, and with voices I have been more active in the last number of months. So I, I'm always happy to engage folks in like friendly, non-attack oriented discussion. Yes. Because I mean, it's just been like, like we just need to kind of like regain our ability to appreciate that. Like we come at this from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Everybody is biased in their own context. Everybody's coming at this from their own, like their own baggage. A lot of the intensivists like bring their intensivist lens to public health issues. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks who, you know, like often I think we are being touched by something as epidemiologists and clinicians that's like more in our face than we're used to things being. Do mm -hmm. you mean we're used to them being like their problem and like we have very separate problems and here we're all in, you know, we're all facing at least a similar threat, although we're at different risks for it. Mm -hmm. And so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm happy to engage with folks, but it has to be like pleasant civil. and yeah. it has to be civil. And yeah. when we get into this thing of like attacking being so certain like like just a complete loss of humility in in like understanding like infections and viruses and immunity and the complexity of it all um i th th in those conversations i would have all day long the yeah. mean ones not so much <laughs> it's just not worth it i, yeah. I you're not going to change anybody's mind when you're totally when you you're know. yelling at them absolutely again thank you so much for doing this and i can't wait for us to do this again my friend yeah i look forward to it i really enjoyed it thanks Quadcast Nation, tell me Steph didn't throw down. Tell me it didn't throw down. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow us, we're at Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at Quadcast. 
Leave your comments at podcast99 at gmail.com. Leave that five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. This is about increasing the visibility of the show so we can continue to change that boogie. Thanks so much for listening, crew, and I cannot wait till we connect again. Peace.